0: Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back. back, don't they? Isn't that everybody so? Back, you tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How you do the dead come back? The Voice in a Night by William Hope Hodson It was a dark, starless night. We were becalmed in the northern Pacific. Our exact position I do not know, for the sun had been hidden during the course of a weary, breathless week by a thin haze which had seemed to float above us, about the height of our mastheads, at whiles descending and shrouding the surrounding sea. With there being no wind, we had steadied the tiller, and I was the only man on deck. The crew, consisting of two men and a boy, were sleeping forward in their den, while Will, my friend and the master of our little craft, was aft in his bunk on the port side of the little cabin. Suddenly, from out of the surrounding darkness, there came a hail, Schooner Ahoy! The cry was so unexpected that I gave no immediate answer because of my surprise. It came again. A voice, curiously throaty and inhuman, calling from somewhere upon the dark sea away on our port broadside. Schooner Ahoy! Hello? I sung out, having gathered my wits somewhat. What are you? What do you want? You need not be afraid, answered the queer voice, having probably noticed some trace of confusion in my tone. I am only an old man. The pause sounded odd, but it was only afterward that it came back to me with any significance. Why don't you come alongside, then? I queried somewhat snappishly, for I like not. this hinting at my having been a trifle shaken. I, I, I can't. It wouldn't be safe. I. The voice broke off and there was silence. "'What do you mean?' I asked, growing more and more astonished. "'What's not safe? Where are you?' I listened for a moment, but there came no answer, and then a sudden indefinite suspicion of I-know-not-what coming to me. I stepped swiftly to the binnacle and took out the lighted lamp. At the same time I knocked on the deck with my heel to waken Will, Then I was back at the side, throwing the yellow funnel of light out into the silent immensity beyond our rail. As I did so, I heard a slight muffled cry, and then the sound of a splash, as though someone had dipped oars abruptly. Yet I cannot say with certainty that I saw anything, save it appeared to me that with the first flash of the light, there had been something upon the waters, where now there was nothing. "'Hello there!' I called. "'What foolery is this?' "'But there came only the indistinct sounds of a boat "'being pulled away into the night. "'Then I heard Will's voice from the direction of the after-scuttle. "'What's up, George?' "'Come here, Will,' I said. "'What is it?' he asked, coming across the deck. "'I told him the queer thing that had happened. "'He put several questions. "'Then, after a moment's silence, "'he raised his hands to his lips and hailed, "'Boat ahoy!' From a long distance away there came back to us a faint reply, and my companion repeated his call. Presently, after a short period of silence, there grew on our hearing the muffled sound of oars, at which Will hailed again. This time there was a reply. Put away the light! I'm damned if I will, I muttered, but Will told me to do as the voice bade, and I shoved it down under the bulwarks. Come nearer, he said, and the oar strokes continued. Then, when apparently some half-dozen fathoms distant, they again ceased. "'Come alongside!' exclaimed Will. "'There's nothing to be frightened of aboard here. "'Promise that you will not show the light?' "'What's to do with you?' I burst out, "'that you're so infernally afraid of the light.' "'Because!' began the voice, and stopped short. "'Because what?' I asked quickly. Will put his hand on my shoulder. "'Shut up a minute, old man,' he said in a low voice. "'Let me tackle him.' He leaned more over the rail. "'See here, mister,' he said, "'this is a pretty queer business, "'you coming upon us like this, "'right out in the middle of the blessed Pacific. "'How are we to know what sort of a hanky-panky trick you're up to? "'You say there's only one of you. "'How are we to know? "'Unless we get a squint at you, eh? "'What's your objection to the light, anyway?' "'As he finished, I heard the noise of the oars again, "'and then the voice came.' but now from a greater distance and sounding extremely hopeless and pathetic. I'm sorry! Sorry! I wouldn't have troubled you, only I am hungry. And so is she. The voice died away, and the sound of the oars dipping irregularly was borne to us. Stop! sang out Will. I don't want to drive you away. Come back. We'll keep the light hidden if you don't like it. Turned to me. It's a damn queer rig, this, but... "'I think there's nothing to be afraid of.' "'There was a question in his tone, and I replied, "'Nah, I think the poor devil's been wrecked round here and gone crazy.' "'The sound of the oars drew nearer. "'Shove that lamp back in the binnacle,' said Will. "'Then he leaned over the rail and listened. "'I replaced the lamp and came back to his side. "'The dipping of the oars ceased some dozen yards distant. "'Won't you come alongside now?' asked Will in an even voice. "'I've had the lamp put back in the binnacle.' I, I, "'I cannot,' replied the voice. "'I dare not come nearer. "'I dare not even pay you for the provisions.' "'That's all right,' said Will and hesitated. "'You're welcome to as much grub as you can take.' "'Again hesitated. "'You are very good,' exclaimed the voice. "'May God, who understands everything, reward you.' He broke off huskily. The, uh, the, "'The lady,' said Will abruptly, "'she?' "'I have left her behind upon the island,' came the voice. "'What island?' I cut in. "'I I know not its name,' returned the voice. "'I would to God!' it began and checked itself as suddenly. "'Couldn't we send a boat for her?' asked Will at this point. "'No!' said the voice with extraordinary emphasis. "'My God, no!' There was a moment's pause. Then it added in a tone which seemed a merited reproach. "'It was because of our want,' I ventured, "'because her agony tortured me.' "'Oh, I'm a forgetful brute!' exclaimed Will. "'Just wait a minute.' whoever you are, and and I'll bring you up something at once. In a couple of minutes he was back again and his arms were full of various edibles. He paused at the rail. Can't you come alongside for them? he asked. No. I dare not, replied the voice. And it seemed to me that in its tones I detected a note of stifled craving, as though the owner hushed a mortal desire. It came to me then in a flash that the poor old creature, out there in the darkness, was suffering for actual need for that which Will held in his arms, and yet, because of some unintelligible dread, refraining from dashing to the side of our schooner and receiving it, and with a lightning-like conviction there came the knowledge that the invisible was not mad, but sanely facing some intolerable horror. Damn it, Will, I said, full of many feelings, over which predominated a vast sympathy. Get a box. I must float off the stuff to him in it. This we did, propelling it away from the vessel out into the darkness by means of a boat hook. In a minute a slight cry from the invisible came to us, and we knew that he had secured the box. A little later he called out a farewell to us, and so heartful a blessing that I'm sure we were the better for it. Then, without more ado, we heard the ply of oars across the darkness. "'Pretty soon off,' remarked Will, with perhaps just a little sense of injury. "'Wait,' I replied, "'I think somehow he'll come back. "'He must have been badly needing that food.' "'And the lady,' said Will. For a moment he was silent, then he continued, "'It's the queerest thing I've ever tumbled across since I've been fishing.' "'Yes,' I said, and fell to pondering.' And so the time slipped away, an hour, another, and still Will stayed with me, for the queer adventure had knocked all desire for sleep out of him. The third hour was three parts through when we heard again the sound of oars across the silent ocean. Listen, said Will, a low note of excitement in his voice. He's coming, just as I thought, I muttered. The dipping of the oars grew nearer, and I noted that the strokes were firmer and longer. The food had been needed. They came to a stop a little distance off the broadside, and the queer voice came again to us through the darkness. "'Schooner, ahoy! That you?' asked Will. "'Yes,' replied the voice. "'I left you suddenly, but but there was great need. "'The lady,' questioned Will, "'the the lady is grateful now on earth. "'She will be more grateful soon in, in heaven.' Will began to make some reply in a puzzled voice, but became confused and broke off short. I said nothing. I was wondering at the curious pauses, and apart from my wonder, I was full of a great sympathy. The voice continued. We, she and I, have talked, as we shared the result of God's tenderness and yours. Will interposed, but without coherence. I beg of you not to— Belittle your deed of Christian charity this night, said the voice. Be sure that it has not escaped his notice. It stopped, and there was a full minute's silence. Then it came again. We have spoken together upon that which which has befallen us. We had thought to go out without telling anyone of the terror which has come into our lives. She is with me in believing that tonight's happenings are under a special ruling, and that it is God's wish that we should tell to you all that we have suffered since. Since, yes, said Will softly, since the sinking of the albatross. Ah, I exclaimed involuntarily, she left Newcastle for Frisco some six months ago and hasn't been heard of since. Yes, answered the voice, but some few degrees to the north of the line she was caught in a terrible storm and dismasted. When the day came it was found that she was leaking badly and presently, it falling to a calm... The sailors took to the boats, leaving, leaving a young lady, my fiancée, and myself upon the wreck. We were below, gathering together a few of our belongings when they left. They were entirely callous, through fear, and when we came up upon the decks, we saw them only as small shapes afar off upon the horizon. Yet we did not despair, but set to work and constructed a small raft. Upon this we put such few matters as it would hold, including a quantity of water and some ship's biscuit. Then, the vessel being very deep in the water, we got ourselves onto the raft and pushed off. It was later when I observed that we seemed to be in the way of some tide or current which bore us from the ship at an angle, so that in the course of three hours by my watch, her hull became invisible to our sight, her broken masts remaining in view for a somewhat longer period. Then, towards evening, it grew misty, and so through the night. The next day we were still encompassed by the mist, the weather remaining quiet. For four days we drifted through this strange haze, until, on the evening of the fourth day, there grew upon our ears the murmur of breakers at a distance. Gradually it became plainer, and somewhat after midnight it appeared to sound upon either hand at no very great space. The raft was raised upon a swell several times, and then we were in smooth water, and the noise of the breakers was behind. When the morning came, we found that we were in a sort of great lagoon, but of this we noticed little at the time, for close before us, through the enshrouding mist, loomed the hull of a large sailing vessel. With one accord we fell upon our knees and thanked God, for we thought that here was an end to our perils. We had much to learn. The raft drew near to the ship, and we shouted on them to take us aboard, but none answered. Presently the raft touched against the side of the vessel, and seeing a rope hanging downward, I seized it and began to climb. Yet I had much ado to make my way up, because of a kind of grey, lichenous fungus that had seized upon the rope, and which blotched the side of the ship lividly. I reached the rail and clambered over it onto the deck. Here I saw that the decks were covered in great patches with grey masses, some of them rising into nodules several feet in height. But at the time I thought less of this matter than of the possibility of there being people aboard the ship. I shouted, but none answered. Then I went to the door below the poop deck. I opened it and peered in. There was a great smell of staleness so that I knew in a moment that nothing living was within and with the knowledge I shut the door quickly for I felt suddenly alone. I went back to the side where I had scrambled up. My, my sweetheart was still sitting quietly upon the raft. Seeing me look down, she called up to know whether there were any aboard of the ship. I replied that the vessel had the appearance of having been long deserted that if she would wait a little I would see whether there was anything in the shape of a ladder by which she could ascend to the deck then we would make a search through the vessel together a little later on the opposite side of the decks I found a rope side ladder this I carried across and a minute afterwards she was beside me together we explored the cabins and apartments in the after part of the ship but nowhere was there any sign of life Here and there, within the cabins themselves, we came across odd patches of that queer fungus, but this, as my sweetheart said, could be cleansed away. In the end, having assured ourselves that the after portion of the vessel was empty, we picked our ways to the bows, between the ugly grey nodules of that strange growth, and here we made a further search, which told us that there was indeed none aboard but ourselves. This being now beyond any doubt we returned to the stern of the ship and proceeded to make ourselves as comfortable as possible together we cleared out and cleaned two of the cabins and after that i made examination whether there was anything eatable in the ship this i soon found was so and thanked god in my heart for his goodness in addition to this i discovered the whereabouts of the fresh water pump and having fixed it i found the water drinkable though somewhat unpleasant to the taste For several days we stayed aboard the ship without attempting to get to the shore. We were busily engaged in making the place habitable. Yet even thus early we became aware that our lot was even less to be desired than might have been imagined. For though as a first step we scraped away the odd patches of growth that studded the floors and walls of the cabins and saloon, yet they returned almost to their original size within the space of twenty-four hours, which not only discouraged us, but gave us a feeling of vague unease. Still we would not admit ourselves beaten, so set to work afresh, and not only scraped away the fungus, but soaked the places where it had been with carbolic, a canful of which I would found in the pantry. Yet by the end of the week the growth had returned in full strength, and in addition it had spread to other places, as though our touching it had allowed germs from it to travel elsewhere. On the seventh morning my sweetheart woke to find a small patch of it growing on her pillow, close to her face. At that she came to me, as soon as she could get her garments upon her. I was in the galley at the time, lighting the fire for breakfast. Come here, John, she said, and led me aft. When I saw the thing upon her pillow I shuddered, and then and there we agreed to go right out of the ship and see, whether we could not fare to make ourselves more comfortable ashore. Hurriedly we gathered together our few belongings, and even among these I found that the fungus had been at work, for one of her shawls had a little lump of it growing near one edge. I threw the whole thing over the side without saying anything to her. The raft was still alongside, but it was too clumsy to guide, and I lowered down a small boat that hung across the stern, and in this we made our way to the shore. Yet, as we drew near to it, I became gradually aware that here the vile fungus which had driven us from the ship was growing riot. In places it rose into horrible fantastic mounds which seemed almost to quiver, as with a quiet life, when the wind blew across them. Here and there it took on the forms of vast fingers, and in others it just spread out flat and smooth and treacherous. Odd places it appeared as grotesque stunted trees, seeming extraordinarily kinked and gnarled, the whole quaking vitally at times. At first it seemed to us that there was no single portion of the surrounding shore which was not hidden beneath the masses of the hideous lichen, yet in this I found we were mistaken. For somewhat later, coasting along the shore at a little distance, we descried a smooth white patch of what appeared to be fine sand, and there— We landed. It was not sand. What it was, I do not know. All that I have observed is that upon it the fungus will not grow, while everywhere else, save where the sand-like earth wanders oddly, pathwise, amid the grey desolation of the lichen, there is nothing but that loathsome greyness. It's difficult to make you understand how cheered we were to find one place that was absolutely free from the growth, and here we deposited our belongings. Then we went back to the ship for such things as it seemed to us we should need. Among other matters, I managed to bring ashore with me one of the ship's sails, with which I constructed two small tents, which, though exceedingly rough-shaped, served the purposes for which they were intended. In these we lived and stored our various necessities, and thus... For a matter of some four weeks, all went smoothly, and without particular unhappiness. Indeed, I may say, with much happiness, for, for we were together. It was on the thumb of her hand that the growth first showed. It was only a small circular spot, much like a little grey mole. My God! The fear leaped to my heart as she showed me the place. We cleansed it between us, washing it with carbolic and water. In the morning of the following day, she showed her hand to me again. The grey, warty thing had returned. For a little while, we looked at one another in silence. Then, still wordless, we started again to remove it. In the midst of the operation, she spoke suddenly. What's that on the side of your face, dear? Her voice was sharp with anxiety. I put my hand up to feel. "'There, under the hair by your ear, a a little to the front of it.' "'My finger rested upon the place, and then I knew. "'Let's get your thumb done first, I said, and she submitted, "'only because she was afraid to touch me until it was cleansed. "'I finished washing and disinfecting her thumb, and then she turned to my face. "'After it was finished, we sat together and talked a while of many things.' for there had come into our lives sudden, very terrible thoughts. We were all at once afraid of something worse than death. We spoke of loading the boat with provisions and water and making our way out onto the sea, yet we were helpless for many causes and, and the growth had attacked us already. We decided to stay. God would do with us what was his will. We would wait. A month Two months, three months passed, and the places grew somewhat, and there had come others. Yet we fought so strenuously with the fear that its headway was but slow, comparatively speaking. Occasionally we ventured off to the ship for such stores as we needed. There we found that the fungus grew persistently. One of the nodules on the main deck soon became as high as my head. We had now given up all thought or hope of leaving the island we had realized that it would be unallowable to go among healthy humans with the things from which we were suffering. With this determination and knowledge in our minds, we knew that we should have to husband our food and water, for we did not know at that time, but that we should possibly live for many years. This reminds me that I have told you that I am an old man. Judged by years, this is not so. But, but, he broke off then continued somewhat abruptly. As I was saying, we knew that we should have to use care in the matter of food, but we had no idea then how little food there was left of which to take care. It was a week later that I made the discovery that all the other bread-tanks which I had supposed full were empty, and that, beyond odd tins of vegetables and meat and some other matters, we had nothing on which to depend but the bread in the tank which I had already opened. After learning this, I bestirred myself to do what I could and set to work at fishing in a lagoon, but with no success. At this, I was somewhat inclined to feel desperate until the thought came to me to try outside the lagoon in the open sea. Here at times I caught odd fish, but so infrequently that they proved of but little help in keeping us from the hunger which threatened. It seemed to me that our deaths were likely to come by hunger, "'and not by the growth of the thing "'which had seized upon our bodies. "'We were in this state of mind "'when the fourth month wore out. "'Then I made a very horrible discovery. "'One morning, a little before midday, "'I came off from the ship "'with a portion of the biscuits which were left. "'In the mouth of her tent "'I saw my sweetheart sitting, eating something. "'What is it, my dear?' "'I called out as I leaped ashore. "'Yet on hearing my voice she seemed confused.' And turning, slyly threw something toward the edge of the little clearing. It fell short, and a vague suspicion having arisen within me, I walked across and picked it up. It was a piece of the grey fungus. As I went to her with it in my hand, she turned deathly pale, then a rose red. I felt strangely dazed and frightened. My dear, my dear, I said, and could say no more. Yet, at my word, she broke down and cried bitterly. Gradually, as she calmed, I got from her the news that she had tried it the preceding day, and—and liked it. I got her to promise on her knees not to touch it again, however great our hunger. After she had promised, she told me that the desire for it had come suddenly, and that, until the moment of desire, she had experienced nothing towards it but the most extreme repulsion— Later in the day, feeling strangely restless and much shaken with the thing which I had discovered, I made my way along one of the twisted paths, formed by the white sand-like substance which led among the fungoid growth. I had, once before, ventured along there, but not to any great distance. This time, being involved in perplexing thought, I went much farther than hitherto. Suddenly I was called to myself by a queer hoarse sound on my left, Turning quickly, I saw that there was movement among an extraordinarily shaped mass of fungus close to my elbow. It was swaying uneasily, as though it possessed life of its own. Abruptly, as I stared, the thought came to me that the thing had a grotesque resemblance to the figure of a distorted human creature. Even as the fancy flashed into my brain, there was a slight, sickening noise of tearing, and I saw that one of the branch-like arms was detaching itself from the surrounding grey masses and coming towards me. The head of the thing, a shapeless grey ball inclined in my direction, I stood stupidly and the vile arm brushed across my face. I gave out a frightened cry and ran back a few paces. There was a sweetish taste upon my lips where the thing had touched me. I licked them and was immediately filled with an inhuman desire. I turned and seized a mass of the fungus, then more and more. I was insatiable. In the midst of devouring the remembrance of the morning's discovery swept into my mazed brain. It was sense by God. I dashed the fragment I held to the ground then utterly wretched and feeling a dreadful guiltiness, I made my way back to the little encampment. I think she knew by some marvellous intuition which love must have given, so as soon as she set eyes on me, a quiet sympathy made it easier for me, and I told her of my sudden weakness, yet omitted to mention the extraordinary thing which had gone before. I desire to spare her of all unnecessary terror. But for myself... I had added an intolerable knowledge to breed an incessant terror in my brain, for I doubted not but that I had seen the end of one of these men, who had come to the island in the ship in the lagoon, and in that monstrous ending I had seen our own. Thereafter we kept from the abominable food, though the desire for it had entered into our blood. yet. Our drear punishment was upon us, but day by day, with monstrous rapidity, the fungoid growth took hold of our poor bodies. Nothing we could do would check it materially, and so and so we, who had been human, became, well, it matters less each day. Only, only we had been man and maid, and day by day the fight is more dreadful to withstand the hunger-lust for the terrible lichen. A week ago, we ate the last of the biscuit, and since that time I have caught three fish. I was out here fishing tonight when your schooner drifted upon me out of the mist. I hailed you. You know the rest, and may God, out of his great heart, bless you for your goodness too. To a couple of poor outcast souls. There was a dip of an oar, another. Then the voice came again, and for the last time, sounding through the slight surrounding mist, ghostly and mournful. God bless you. Goodbye. Goodbye, we shouted together, hoarsely, our hearts full of many emotions. I glanced about me. I became aware that dawn was upon us. The sun flung a stray beam across the hidden sea, pierced the mist dully, and lit up the receding boat with a gloomy fire. Indistinctly, I saw something nodding between the oars. I thought of a sponge, a great grey, nodding sponge. The oars continued to ply. They were grey, as was the boat, and my eyes searched the moment vainly for the conjunction of hand and oar. My gaze flashed back to the head. It nodded forward as the oars went backward for the stroke. Then the oars were dipped, the boat shot out of the patch of light, and the... the thing... went nodding into the mist. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, is not that Everybody so? Back, you tried to get into the lock. Let me tell you something about William Hope Hodson, the author of that piece. So William Hope Hodgson, born November 15th, 1877, died April the 19th, 1918, was an English author, poet and sailor. You might have picked that up all in binnacles and topsicles and bobacles and anyway. He is best known for his works of horror and fantasy fiction, including his novel The House on the Borderland, which is a good one, and his collection of short stories The Night Land. Hodson was born in Blackmore End, Essex, England, to a family of sailors. He spent much of his childhood at sea, sailing with his father on various merchant ships. He left home at the age of 13 and spent the next 18 years of his life at sea, travelling to various parts of the world, including the Arctic and Antarctic regions. Hudson began writing in his spare time while at sea, and his first published work was a series of articles on fishing that appeared in the Royal Magazine in 1898. He later... Let me work out how, how old he was then. So he was born in 77, so that's an easy one, isn't it? He's uh, 21. Um, correct my maths if I'm wrong. Uh, so he turned to fiction and published his first collection of short stories, *The Blo- The Boats of Glen Carrig, in 1907. Now... Um, Hudson on Borderlands set in the west of Ireland and it sounds kind of, Glenn Carrick sounds a bit um, Irish Hudson's most famous works were published in the early 1900s and his career was cut short by his death during World War One. he joined the British Army in 1915 and served in France as a private I'm surprised he didn't go into the Navy to be fair in the 171st Brigade of the Royal Field Artillery he was killed in action by an artillery shell at Ypres, Belgium on April 19th, 1918 my um, my grandmother's uncle Joseph um, was killed in 1916. He was, but he was in the Royal Field Artillery. He was killed at um, on the Somme, Bazentin le Petit. Um, they went forward. But I remember he said this before. Apparently, there was a big assault in the He was artillery, so they went forward as sappers to clear the land, and he was killed by a shell, including a load of other blokes as well. Despite his short career. William Hope Hodgson left a lasting legacy in the world of horror and fantasy fiction. His works have been praised by authors such as H.P. Lovecraft who called him second only to Lord Dunsany as a master of weird fiction and Clark Ashton Smith who continued in one of the great masters of the eerie and fantastic. So this is putting him into um you know he's not this is not a ghost story is it. It's not um E.F. Benson, M.R. James style. Uh, you know, there's a whole world of people like that. It It is edging into weird fiction, sort of the pulp stuff, which is of its time, I guess, you know. I'll tell you some interesting things about him. He was an accomplished physical fitness enthusiast and wrote several books on physical culture, including The Physical Training of Children, The Mystery of the Body's Strength. He was also an expert in jiu-jitsu and boxing. Hodgson was an avid photographer and took many photographs during his travels at sea. Some of his photographs were used to illustrate his books. Hodson's novel, The Nightland, is set in a far future in which the sun has died and the last remnants of humanity uh, live in a giant pyramid-shaped city called The Last Redoubt. The novel is notable for its use of archaic language and its epic scope. Hodson's novel, The House on the Borderland, is considered a precursor to Lovecraftian horror with its themes of cosmic horror and ancient malevolent entities. Easy for you to say. Hodson was a prolific writer and his works include novels, short stories, poetry and non-fiction Hodson's death during World War I was a great loss to the literary world. Lovecraft wrote a moving tribute to him, saying, In versatility, in absolute cosmic absorption, and in imaginative faculty, no one of his generation surpassed him. So there we are. Um, and I think uh, that was a, a nice story suggested by somebody, one of my patrons, who uh, contacted me to said, they subscribed and would I read this? And I looked at it. And, uh, you know, with selection of stories, people... Inevitably, I look at them from a technical point of view as well. So, I mean, and what I mean is not the technical writing, although I do consider that, but also um, length, uh, particularly length, and also genre. Sometimes people suggest things like um, that. I know nobody they might like, I might like, but nobody else is going to like. They won't have a a popular appeal, and this is kind of why I've stayed away from Lafcadio Hyan's Japanese stories because they like. They're like um, public transport. Everybody believes in buses, but nobody uses them. So uh, you know what would happen would be people would go, "Oh, that's going to be great to do that," and then nobody would listen to it. So, um, so, and I am driven by listens because that's how I get paid. Being dead straight with you. So, anyway, um, what else to say? Yes. Yeah, so the, this one was good because it was this. It's a nice length. Funnily enough, as you know now. I am now wise to the fact that you can't please everybody. So there there are complaints when I do stories. There are complaints when I do stories which are too short. And the recent complaint was I've had two complaints because I did stories of longer than an hour. So people complain about that. And then what I did, um, I don't know if you've heard, my uh, Honeysuckle Cottage, I think it's Honeysuckle Cottage. And I do, it's a comic story, and I do comic voices, and somebody had put on... Warning in big capitals. The the annoying voice at and give a timestamp will wake you up. So I'm like, oh well, should I not do any comic voices? No, you, I don't need you to write in the support of me. Although I do appreciate your support, but because I know, yeah, well, you know, tough like lass, as we'd say. The other that reminds me to think that this this set yeah, this story set in the ocean of the Pacific, the North Pacific off the coast of um, North America. So, you know, North California, that way, you know, you know that way, Oregon kind of way. Um, it, it It is a coincidence that everybody involved, both the people who were shipwrecked and turning into fungi, fungi fungoids. Um, that's a good thing. That'd be a great monster for Call of Cthulhu, a fungoid. Um, and the crew, Will and our narrator, are all from Workington. So, you know, that's another matter I kind of decide. And I've done quite a lot. I do quite a lot because they're written often, these are written by um, middle-class people, educated middle-class English people. And so uh, I I end up doing that accent a lot. So I thought, nah, come on, I'll go, I'll revert to type. It just means that they're all for a wooking. So, um, which I don't know if I told you about that time when I was doing my walk recently, and I ended up, and it was raining. I ended up in a pub, which was not, not, not a terrible thing, and there was a, me and one bloke and we got talking, and of course because I was walking the the rural back roads of Cumberland I was pretty keen, not to be mistaken, for a foreigner, and I don't mean that in a, um, god, you didn't realise boom, red flag, red flag, red flag what I mean is, I'm a native so I wanted to, I wanted to be one of the in crowd, I wanted to be accepted, is what I'm saying so, um so basically I became quite, My da- I spoke quite, my dialect became stronger and uh, we were talking to this fellow and he says, oh, I mean, he wasn't as broad as this fellow, do it like this. He said, so we was still for And I was like, uh, well, Wukiton. He says, ah, you're a yeah. I says, aye. And then we got talking, he was, he, so I says, "As a West Cumberland lad. And so we were, we were, um, I was saying that and he started talking about, because I live in Carlisle now, so he started talking about, <laughs> yeah, I'd never heard it before, castor oils. I'd never, never realised that there was this disparaging word for Carlisle people and apparently it's castor <laughs> oils. And Liam, who's Sheila's son, who is the, the puppy, we'll talk about puppies probably, um, he, um, he said, oh yeah, they call us that, yeah. I said, I didn't know, I'd never heard that before, but I agreed with this fellow, the castor oils, that is Carlisle people, to look down the noses at us uh, back, backwards West Cumbrian folk—they definitely do. But they think they're cut above. They think they're from this big city, but they're not. Ha! Anyway, don't get me wrong. I was—I'm born in hospital in Carlisle. I live in Carlisle. I've got nothing against Carlisle. You have to be so careful these days. You don't offend people. People are writing comments. You, you rascal. I had one where I did a story. Um, I don't know if you've heard my own story, the catacombs, which is generally very well received. There was this one bloke on who was who said the accent was offensive to Australians and made everybody in the world think that Australians were, I can't remember what he said, sort of, you can imagine like Crocodile Dundee. Not, I, well, I didn't think that, mate. But uh, anyway, I blocked him in the end. So I've decided, um, as it's my channel, I don't really need to sit with these, because people post offensive comments. I don't actually need to have them there, so I'll block them. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable about that. So... There we are, that's the truth. So that's why every, all the comets look wonderful, because the bad ones are being pruned away. Anyway, what was I going to say? So, yeah, it was a cosmic horror story, really kind of. Science fiction-y? Science fiction-y? Cosmic horror? I would have quite... I mean, it would have been possibly too much, but it would have been interesting if the, we'd seen that the fungus was now spreading on the sea. Um, But his is more restrained, and the threat is perhaps... Is better, more subtle if it just grows up. I wonder what that white sandlight subject was. I'd never figured that one out. Anyway, let's back to puppies because I'm obsessed by puppies. So I've had these two dogs now for 10 days. And I knew them before because they were, we used to look after Shade, who was their mother, and we used to get her and take her walking. But she belonged to my, my uh, stepson. And, um, so she had a litter. If you're following this, you'll know she had 10 puppies, two of which died. Uh, so she had eight, which was overwhelming for her because she was only a little dog. And the two runts of the litter were a little grey one who was sleepy and never got, and she was little and she never seemed to get enough food and she was quiet. And we thought, oh, we'll have her. And then there was another one who we used to call Sawfoot. she was sleepy grey and uh, he was Sawpaw. Uh, Sawpaw. So and uh, he he had a, some kind of growth on one of his on a, on a claw, one of his fingers on his left hand. I know they're feet, but you know left foot, the top left foot. And um, he he didn't put weight on it, and it appeared to be growing. So I thought, oh goodness me! So I may have told you this story before, but so basically, I thought, well, nobody's going to buy that poor dog, and L- Liam. It was his first adventure into having puppies and I think he maybe thought he thought it was a great moneymaker but the time Shade the mother was ill and there's the vet's fees and and the food and all of these things I'm not sure actually he made a ton of money out of it at all in fact I know he didn't and I thought well listen this poor little puppy here with the thing nobody's going to buy him and um, I'm not saying they would have euthanized him but they might have done and I thought well do you know and I tell you this is when I want you to feel lovely about yourselves OK, because you support me financially through my writing, my narrating, you either um, give me cash, basically, or you um, watch and li- not so much on a podcast, the podcast doesn't bring anything in, but on YouTube, definitely YouTube pays me for the ads. So you watch ads, you've got to listen to at least a certain number of seconds of them first before I get paid, by the way. If that isn't is a is a consideration for you, so uh, but anyway, all of that comes and that allows me to have the money that I could pay for sore paws treatment. So he they came to us and I wanted to call them uh, Jake and Connie, but um, Sheila uh, is I'm just I just bossed about by everybody. So um she and and I've I've got you some out, so it's. Jasper and Ruby. So to me, they're just Jasper and Ruby now. So Jasper is a boy, and he was so poor. And Ruby was a girl, and she was sleepy grey. Okay. So um, turns out that out of the pack, where she's allowed to flourish, this little tiny dot of a dog is a living terror. She's the funniest, energetic, loving little thing. She just bombs around. Now he wasn't able to do that as much. He would manfully. Oh, oh, dogfully get into a bundle with her but he had to retire because it, you could tell his foot was hurting him and he wouldn't put it on, it was getting worse, so we went to, the, and luckily we had a biopsy and it, it said it wasn't cancer but it was an unusual thing in the little dog so we hoped it wouldn't get better, bigger but he did get bigger and it became more painful so unfortunately we had to have his toe amputated and oh my, I was waiting for him to go into surgery I was at work and I was oh, you know, it's amazing how much you can love him so quickly um, I know it's oxycontin, but um, it still works. Uh, so uh, you know the neurotransmitters—they're just babies, and poof, and of course they they designed by evolution to make you look after babies. Same with the lambs; fields are full of lambs at the moment. Like, oh, so cute! And um, mm, we could we maybe won't follow that that thought about the lambs, but Jasper. So he came back, and oh my, you know, but he's tons better. He's got a no chew bandage. Um, we have to get his um bandages. We've sent the the pathology off just to check, but when they they were amputating it, it didn't look like tumor cells. It was um a hyperkeratosis with a sebum inside, so it was some kinda of, I don't know what it was, but it wasn't very nice for him. And he's loads better. He's on these he's got antibiotics as a prophylactic, and he's um got a painkiller. But he's ah, he's just so much better now. So I am happier by a ton now that my little man's feeling better and so I've got the two of them and they're wonderful anyway there we are <laughs> um, if you don't like dogs mm, you've probably tuned out I could talk about politics but then probably not or religion i tell you what was very uh, interesting and I found actually nice um, a genuine a Christian belief in that from the writer That um, now I You probably know that I'm not, I'm not, I I have a lot of time for, um, I was brought up Christian and I have a lot of time for lots of things about Christianity. I guess my, with most people, it's it's the organized religion aspect and the fact that it has been used to control. I went to, I go to this philosophy group every month and we were talking about this, some guy was talking about um, Buddhism, I like Buddhism as well and in um, Hinduism and blah, blah, blah. And we were saying that the thing about Christianity was that it came out of the deserts and it was then um, incorporated into the structure of the Roman Empire. So the rome I mean, remember that uh, Constantine possibly didn't even believe himself in Christianity, but he thought it was quite a useful thing. And, and Christianity became mapped on to the political structure of the Roman Empire. So our, across, you know, Europe where it was, so you have um, the, the cathedral and the, dio- the diocese and the parishes, those were the Roman administrative centres so Christianity in, in the province, you got there was the arch of the the grape, so look at the UK, look at England uh, or oh, it wasn't England then, but Britannia um, and you've got in the south, I, I know most about that rather than Gaul or um, Italy or Spain, um what you've got is Britannia inferior and Britannia superior, so it was split into two bits. Somebody who is a historian will correct me on this, but, you know, I think vaguely it's true. So, and the bottom bit, we have the Archbishop of Canterbury, ultimately. Of course, this was all messed with because of the Anglo-Saxons coming in uh, who who messed it a bit, but I think it broadly preserved it, the Roman um, structure, but certainly truer in other parts in Greece and places like that. and then you have York for the northern province and then below that you have your bishops, your, your bishoprics, Durham and um, Glasgow and, um, you know, St. David's, structures slightly different possibly in Wales um, and Exeter and all of these things. And then below that you have the parishes. where well, that is Roman provincial government and Christianity mapped onto it. Why am I saying this? Because Christianity became an organ of the state it became an organ of the empire and it was used to control I think that isn't to say there wasn't good things in it um, and th- there are good things in it some lovely beautiful things in it but um, I think the organised it became too much I think my, in a nutshell my point is it became too, too busy and too cosied up to state power so it then became uh, a, a, an organ of control. Um, yeah, and that, that is its problem. That has been its problem. Um, and so it's associated with civil repression. And, yeah, anyway, you could we can debate. I'm sure somebody will leave a comment. If you're respectful, I'll, I'll leave it up. If it's rude, uh, you tell me, okay, you are a... I'm I'm going to just delete it. Okay, so as you know. Anyway, one has wondered a little bit, i better go down and see the puppies um, I could hear them fighting before, uh, they don't, they only play fine. anyway, oh, dogs again <sighs> anyway, William Hope Hudson, thanks for the suggestion for that and I will be in touch soon Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody, Everybody can't bash, don't they? isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried. How do the dead come back, What's the secret? I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is, and, and, you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just didn't like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.